Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On February 4th, 1979, Joe Giratano woke up on his friend Tony Klein's Norfolk, Virginia couch, hungover and disoriented, as he usually was early in the morning. Klein's apartment, which she shared with her 15-year-old daughter, Michelle, was known as a party place. People coming and going freely, as long as there was booze and drugs. It was where 22-year-old Joe Giratano had been sleeping for the last couple of months. But that morning when Joe woke up, it wasn't just the drugs and the alcohol making things disorienting. It was the state of the apartment. Blood was everywhere. Sticky boot prints pointing a trail towards the bathroom. When Joe got up to investigate, he found Tony Klein dead, stabbed multiple times in the chest. In her bedroom was Michelle Klein, who had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Joe could not remember what had happened, which wasn't a surprise. Joe often could not remember what had happened the night before. He was so far down in the hole of addiction at that point. Narcotics and alcohol dulling the pain of his childhood years that, that when he saw the dead women and all that blood, Joe just assumed that he'd done it himself. So Joe got the hell out of there. He boarded a Greyhound bus, destination Jacksonville, Florida. But when he got to Jacksonville the next day, after that long ride all the way down the coast in the back of that old Greyhound, Joe had made up his mind. The first thing he did when he stepped on the street in Florida the first thing he did when he stepped onto the street in Florida was walk up to a cop. I killed two people in Norfolk, Virginia. I'd like to turn myself in. The cops, of course, thought he was crazy until they called Norfolk and found out that, yeah, two women had been killed right where he said they'd be. So they sat Joe down and started asking him questions for a couple of days. And they got some wild stories out of Joe, several of them, actually, before they sent Joe back to Virginia where he was quickly charged with capital murder. All of which would sound like justice, of course, for Tony Klein and her daughter Michelle, if Joe was actually guilty, which he was not. This is the story of Joe Giratano, an innocent man and accomplished jailhouse lawyer, in his quest to not only prove his own innocence, but the innocence of others that he'd met along the way in America's broken and busted criminal justice system. Hello friends, I'm your host Jenny. Welcome to Vile Virginia.
Joe Giratano was born in 1957 in the Bronx, New York, into a violent and dysfunctional home. He did not know his father until they met when he was 16 and they happened to be staying in the same jail. Joe was subjected to terrible physical abuse, including being beaten with a baseball bat. His mother was a terrible drug addict, showing Joe how to inject his own Demerol when he was just 11 years old. His first attempted suicide was when he was 13, when his beloved stepfather died. After that, he tried again multiple times and was seen by numerous psychiatrists with no luck. By his early 20s, Joe had become a drifter who found himself working as a scallop boat fisherman in Norfolk. That's when he found himself living in Tony Klein's apartment with Tony and her daughter Michelle. He'd gone over there one night to party, passed out on the sofa, then met them the next morning when he woke up. Tony Klein worked at the 7-Eleven close to their apartment. She'd been a beautician before that and had been married twice. Michelle was her daughter from that second marriage. A newspaper article from the 80s recalls Michelle as a girl who was fun to be around. A student at nearby Northside High School, she, quote, liked to dance. She liked animals. She wanted to be a vet. She could be serious, and she was very smart. Tony was very warm-hearted, but could also be as tough as a nail, one friend remembered. Michelle had thought Joe was funny and enjoyed his company. He was never in a relationship with Tony Klein, then 44 years old. But the woman was kind enough to let Joe sleep on their couch until it was time for him to go back out on the scallop boat. Joe was happy to have a place to put his head at night. When Joe woke up to all that blood and Tony and Michelle Klein dead, he decided the only thing that made sense was that he had done it. Which is what he told that police officer in Florida when he got off the bus, having had time to think about things and let the guilt settle on the long drive down. All the cops in Florida could think of when they got Joe was what a mess. They sat him down and asked him what had happened. And Joe gave them the bare outlines of what he figured he must have done to Tony and Michelle in that apartment. But there was a problem. When Florida cops talked to Virginia cops, they realized that what Joe told them didn't match what they were saying. But that was okay. There's always ways around that. In all, Joe Giratano gave five different confessions to the murders of Tony and Michelle Klein. Each of them different from the other, and all of them until the last, with major details, wrong. That last one was closest because, at that point, the Norfolk lead detective took Joe to the crime scene and showed him what happened, wrote it up himself, and Joe just signed it. As Joe had begun to come out from his drug and alcohol fuel haze, prison officials decided to swap one drug for another and kept him pumped up on Thorazine a powerful tranquilizer that kept Joe docile and super out of it. Riddled with guilt, he just agreed with whatever they put in front of him. Joe was brought back to Virginia to stand trial for the murders, and on May 22, 1979, was offered a plea bargain. Plead guilty, and you won't face the death penalty, and you'll be eligible for parole in 20 years. That's a crazy good deal considering all the things that would happen later, but Joe turned it down. Instead, he admitted his guilt and pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. He decided to forego a jury trial and went for a bench trial in front of a judge instead. The entire proceeding was over before lunchtime in just a single day, literally. State psychiatrists painted a portrait of a man who consistently abused alcohol, cocaine, and Dilaudid on a daily basis and who'd been treated for violent psychiatric issues his entire life. His defense tried to explain the crime by suggesting that 
Mentally, Joe had swapped out the image of Tony Klein for his own abusive mother and symbolically murdered her to avenge her abuse. That's what his defense attorney said. So Joe didn't have a chance. The judge found him guilty of capital murder and sent Joe to death row, all in a single afternoon. On April 18, 1980, following an automatic appeal, which happened to be a brand new law designed to ensure the death penalty was applied fairly, the Virginia Supreme Court affirmed Joe Giratano's death penalty. And Joe said, okay, kill me. He figured if he'd done such a horrible thing, then he should suffer for it and die. He wrote to the judge three days after the ruling and said, quote, it's my decision to refuse all further appeals, which is my privilege. His execution was set for just two months later, on June 13, 1980. Giratano told the press he was, quote, ready to go. Then the hurt will be over at last. The pain and feelings I can't live with will be ended. But on June 3rd, Joe had a change of heart. Prison reform advocates and death penalty opponents, including that oft-mentioned hero, Marie Deans, had been outraged at the process that had so quickly sent Joe to the electric chair. They also saw something in Joe that they thought deserved saving. So they convinced Joe to appeal his sentence. With help from anti-death penalty lawyers working pro bono, Joe did just that. And on June 12th, with just 37 hours to go before his execution, Joe Giratano was granted a stay. It wouldn't be the last time Joe would get so close to the electric chair. We often hear stories of tremendous change and renewal taking place behind prison bars. Of violent offenders who find their purpose and transform their entire life from one of violence to one of peace in a search for education. Joe Giratano's story is like that, but with the additional fact that Joe was innocent of the crime he was in prison for. I'm not going to say that prison was good for Joe because that'd be an insult to the reality of what Joe faced there. Joe in particular was subjected to horrible torture in prison and not just the solitary confinement he was placed in for retaliatory purposes. But prison did give Joe the opportunity to get off drugs and alcohol. Because of his extensive psychological issues, prison officials continued to keep him doped up on that Thorazine, but eventually Joe got off that too. And once his mind was finally clear for the first time since he was a little kid, Joe blossomed. In the book Dead Run by Dennis Stockton, which chronicled the 1984 escape from Mecklenburg Correctional Center's death row by the Briley brothers and a handful of others, we learn a lot about the early days of Joe Giratano in jail. He was wild and unpredictable and constantly pestered by prison guards who enjoyed taunting the soft-faced killer with a death wish. He was instrumental in helping the Mecklenburg Six in their escape from death row and had every intention of going with them. But during the escape, things turned violent, against the wishes of many of the planners. And Joe decided not to join, instead staying behind to ensure the escapees had a nice head start. The Briley's were not pleased with his abdication from the group at all. But by that point, Joe was operating on his own schedule. He was no longer the damaged and scattered young man he had been when he arrived on death row. Joe Giratano had a big brain and an agile mind, and he was sticking around to use it. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Joe began poring over law books and becoming an expert on not only his own case, but on his fellow inmates' cases as well. It took little time to realize the injustice facing so many of the men he was housed with. His most notable advocacy was for Earl Washington Jr., who we covered in our last episode. Earl Washington was illiterate, intellectually disabled, and facing the electric chair with zero legal representation. Joe rightfully thought this was a travesty, and reached out to his network of anti-death penalty advocate friends to find Earl Washington the legal help he was in desperate need of. Washington came within nine days of the electric chair, but he was eventually declared innocent and released to live out the rest of his days as a free man. It is no exaggeration to say that without Joe Giratano's intervention and staunch advocacy, Earl Washington would have died in that electric chair. The attorneys and advocates who helped the convicted with their appeals took note of Joe Giratano. They realized he was more than just a jailhouse lawyer helping his neighbors understand the complicated legal process and filings that needed regular care to advance their cases. He was also adept at coming up with his own novel legal arguments. One of his cases advanced to the Supreme Court in 1989. It was an attempt to expand legal representation for inmates during habeas appeals. It was upheld at the federal court level, but the Supreme Court decided in a 5-4 to four ruling that inmates don't have a right to counsel during habeas appeals, including the capital cases. It says so much about our legal system that they fight so hard to make sure the condemned don't have representation in court for what's usually a last-ditch effort. It's more proof that our criminal justice system is not set up to correct the wrongs that it regularly makes. Joe Giratano became a thorn in the side of correction officials as he lobbied hard for inmates' rights, including advance access to counsel, the right to confidential communications with attorneys, and expanded visitation. But while he was working so hard to better the lives of everyone else on death row, attorneys were also looking at his case and realizing that it was all nonsense. Other than Joe's confessions, there was no evidence linking him to the murders and sexual assault. And if anything, the confessions proved Joe didn't do it. He gave five in total, and every single one contradicted the others. He said that he had killed Michelle first, after she had willingly gone into her bedroom with him, and that her mother had walked in afterwards, so he killed her too, which is the opposite order to whom detectives believe was killed first. 
Also, there were drag marks leading to Michelle's room, which suggested she'd not gone there willingly. He said that he strangled Michelle with his hands and that she was naked, but the autopsy showed that her strangulation had not been manual, but had done with some sort of ligature. And also, she was clothed when she was found. He said that he stabbed Tony in the hallway, but she was in the bathroom, and evidence showed that the bathroom was the only place she'd been attacked. Whoever had stabbed Tony Klein had been right-handed. Joe Giratano was not only left-handed, but has a neurological deficit that limits his strength on the right side, making it highly unlikely that he could have created those injuries. None of the copious semen or hair samples found in the apartment matched Joe Giratano. He said that he had used a seven-inch wooden-handled kitchen knife, but none of the wounds was deeper than three inches, which would be almost impossible considering the amount of force used to make those injuries. In addition, he said he threw the knife in the yard next door, but that knife was never found, despite the yard being very small and empty. Bloody boot prints left at the scene did not match Joe's boots. The official autopsy report was changed to match Joe's statements to smooth over some of these differences in Joe's telling and reality. Joe's confessions changed following each interaction with police, who fed him more details about the crime scene, but still, he never got it fully right. But in Virginia in the 1980s and early 1990s, and really for most of Virginia's existence, proof of innocence didn't matter at all once a person was convicted. We've talked a lot about how the criminal justice system is set up to convict people. And all our assumptions are that whomever is convicted is guilty. Got new proof of evidence like new and improved DNA testing? Too bad. You have three weeks after conviction to introduce it. That's 21 days. And after that, the state of Virginia doesn't want to see it. In October of 2000, the Virginia Supreme Court eliminated the 21-day rule for capital cases. But that ruling came far too late for far too many people. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit denied Joe's habeas appeal in 1989. Following intense public pressure and in the face of tremendous exculpatory evidence, Governor Douglas Wilder commuted Joe Giratano's death sentence to life in prison with a recommendation that Joe receive a new trial. But in the 1990s, America was experiencing a fresh bloodlust as crime soared because of Reagan's phony war on drugs. And while Virginia was at the beginning of what would become a two-decade-long shift to the left, they still had plenty of hardliners who just wanted to execute people. So Democratic Attorney General Mary Suteri refused Joe's request for a new trial with the excuse that evidence of innocence is irrelevant under Virginia's procedural rules. At least they didn't bother to pretend things were fair. Finally off a of death row, Joe was sent to Augusta Correctional Institution, where he was housed in the general population. While he was there, he started a very popular 14-week course on nonviolence that was delivered to prisoners with the help of Coleman McCarthy, who had founded the Center for Teaching Peace course was featured on NBC News and received funds from the Catholic Campaign for Human Development until it was shut down in 1995. Prison officials said that there had been a funding impropriety, but later retracted that statement. The truth, as Joel told it, was the prison officials, quote, just didn't like it. Joe was transferred several times within the state, which he says was met with violence from other inmates, as prison officials would label him a snitch before he arrived. After he was stabbed at Buckingham Correctional Center, the state sent him all the way to Utah. According to official reports, the reason for the move was because Virginia had, quote, a hot prisoner they wanted to get rid of. 
As soon as Joe got to Utah, he was sent to solitary confinement in what Joe described as a quote-unquote attempt to break him. The ACLU published some of Joe's diaries of his time in solitary in Utah. These diaries are harrowing. Here's an excerpt from one. Upon arrival in Utah, I refused to be photographed for a prison ID, i.e., I made funny faces and stuck my tongue out. At that point, a fully geared-up goon squad was brought in to escort me to a cell. I was told that I would cooperate or be broken. I was placed in a small cell, 8 by 10 at best, with low ceiling. There was no window. Bar door, and then a solid steel door that was closed to cut off any contact with others. Once locked in, with steel door closed, the overhead light was turned off. The cell became pitch black. I could not see my hand in front of my face, nor see the toilet sink combo. I stayed like that for 10 days. Twice a day, a bag meal would be tossed into the cell through a food hatch that would slam shut behind it. The mice had a field day. Joe had a lot of friends on the outside looking out for him, though. And once they found him, Joe was moved into a secure housing unit, also known as a shoe. Life on shoe is only marginally better. Small cells with no cellmates, two hours of outside rec alone in an outside cell that was only open to the sky, and only two ten-minute showers a week. More from Joe. If the counselor wanted to see you, the guard would shackle you, cuff you behind your back, place you on a short leash, and sometimes put a hood over your head. You would be escorted to a room and chained to a wall where the counselor would speak. Then you would wait to be escorted back. Could take a few minutes, could be two hours chained to the wall. Joe went on a hunger strike for 80 days. Joe was taken to the medical unit during his hunger strike, and from there Utah demanded Virginia take him back. Instead, he was moved to Illinois, where he went on another hunger strike. And Illinois was like, Virginia, y'all need to come get your boy. This is not working out. So Virginia finally took him back and sent him straight to Red Onion, the toughest place in the state, where, like in Utah and in Illinois, he was once again placed on a SHU, a secure housing unit. In all, Joe spent eight years living in SHU, where the lack of physical touch, human interaction, and sunlight created lifelong issues like a permanent vitamin D deficiency, an intense aversion to crowds in large spaces. The lack of exercise while at Red Onion led to a case of deep vein thrombosis in one of Joe's legs. Prison officials dragged their feet on getting him an ambulance and then thought about helicoptering him to a medical center. But at the end of it all, they decided to just put Joe in a car and drive him the seven hours to the hospital in Richmond. Once he was finally given medical treatment, the doctors had no choice but to amputate his leg. One of the guards later told him, quote, You know you were supposed to die en route. In 2004, Joe was eligible for parole the first time. He recanted his confessions, and his attorneys sought additional testing on physical evidence collected from the crime scene in 1979. But, quote, Norfolk and Virginia authorities have maintained that the biological evidence in Giratano's case was destroyed years ago. So Joe continued to sit in jail. Finally, on November 21, 2017, after 38 years for a crime it was clear he didn't commit decades ago, Joe Giratano finally walked out of prison. Not exactly a free man, because he was still on parole, but at least he was no longer behind bars. Upon his release, the then 60-year-old Joe said, quote, I want to go out there and make a difference. I've got some years ahead of me. And he went right to work doing just that. In May of 2018, Joe Giratano moved into an apartment in Charlottesville, 
where he works with the UVA Innocent Project, pouring through hundreds of cases of potential wrongful convictions, using the tools he learned while behind bars. He's lectured at the University of Virginia, American University, and the Richmond University School of Law. In addition to articles he had published in the Yale Law Review and the Los Angeles Times while he was still in prison. Knowing Joe's story and the tremendous hurdles he had to overcome to finally get to that point, it's hard not to think of all the other people behind bars and what could have come of their lives had any of them been given a fair shake. That's it for this week, friends. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder that if you'd like to support the show, click on support on the website and you you can either buy me a one-time cup of coffee or you can support us on Patreon. Every little bit counts and helps keep the lights on and helps keep me making these episodes. Stay safe out there. Stay cool. Get your vaccination if you haven't gotten it yet. And we'll see you next time. For a list of sources or additional information, please visit www.vileVirginia.com or visit our Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Six Semper Tyrannus, y'all.